With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hi, this is Cliff Berg, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising Podcast. Greetings, and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Hersko, joining you once again. Uh, with me, I have special guests, uh, the irregular, regular, I guess we can call him by now, Mike Cadell. Mike, greetings. Greetings. How are y'all? Glad to have you. We have Janelle Lanza joining us once again. Man, she came back for a show after being on a show with Gifford. God God bless her. God bless her. Janelle, greetings. Hello. Great to be back. We are glad to have you. And our first time guest, uh, Nicholas Carey. Did I say it right? Sorry, but yeah, yeah. Good. Close enough. Close enough, close enough. Nicholas is joining us from Finland, so we are doing a rare uh, daytime recording um, and and no beer involved, which is kind of odd, but, you know, I have the day off, so I can start drinking all the rest of everybody. It wouldn't really be fair. So what are we talking about this episode? Well, a bunch of us just finished reading the book. Um, uh, I'm going to have to edit this in post. We finished reading the book by Matthew Skelton and Manuel, I'm going to say it's Pais, Team Topologies. So... This book has been floating around the Agile ecosystem for a while. People like Mike Burroughs have mentioned it. Safe actually is starting to mention it. And serendipitously, a whole slew of us started reading it at the same time. So now what we're going to do is um, rarely do we ever sit down and talk about a book without the author on. We purposely wanted to try and have a panel discussion. And then I'm going to reach out to Matt and have him come on later so we can actually pick his brain in like a part two of this. Uh, But to start, and I'm going to start with you, Janelle. Um, What, what? Uh, what did you see? What did you hear about this book that got you interested? Had you actually, out of all the Agile books that are available on Amazon, to pick it up and dive in? What led you to that path? Who's starting? Starting you. I'm starting with you, Janelle. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, well, there was, to be honest, the first motivator, whenever I see a group working on a book, I think, ooh, why, why is this important to me? Like, do I... I'm a very competitive person in that regard. And so I have to just check myself on that and say, just because Mike's doing it doesn't mean I need to do it. Um, the final straw was when I was in a final job interview preparations and the hiring manager was talking about um, the nature of the work and team topology. So I was like, all right, I'm going to read it. The, the parts that, and I was exposed to it in Scaled Agile, but the parts that really resonated to me Um, We're really digging into the communication between teams. I was really um, surprised to see how much of that, you know, the different, you know, are we collaborating? Are we communicating? Um, Are we making something together? 
Um, so that's the part that really stuck out at me as I want to make those connections in my, in my practice um, so that I can raise my game. Perfect, perfect. How about you, Nicholas? What led you down the path to end up uh, with Team Topologies? Well, I, it was like you said, it popped out like, uh, you know, in, in many places on, on, on Twitter and, and, and uh, like in, in different meetups, etc. Uh, and I think like for some time I was actually not reading it because I think the, the title is maybe a little bit boring, like team topologies. What is that? Uh, although the, like the, the kind of subtitle organizing business and technology for team for fast flow is, is, is much better. Uh, but, but then, uh, then eventually like I, I, I just decided I, I need to order it. It's been popping up too, too many times and, and it just happened to be at the same time that everyone else apparently started reading it. So. <laughs> timing, that sense. serendipitous timing for all of us we all amazon yeah. must have noticed this real quick spike and said somebody must be running an ad campaign somewhere how about you mike well the um momentum started growing on the, the discord channel for it so i yeah kind of along the lines of janelle i looked at it and well, to be honest a little bit of fomo kicked in and um i went out, went out to amazon i was just kind of looking at some of the reviews and saw a review by a well-known figure in the agile world that pretty much said, this book is trash. Um, so <laughs> when I, I saw that juxtaposed with the, the positive vibe that it's received throughout the rest of the community, I, that really piqued my interest. I thought, I got to see what's going on here. It is kind of funny. That's the way our human brains work. Right, like half the people say I love this movie, half the people say I hate this movie. It kind of does make you want to see the movie so you can form your own opinion and figure out who's right and who's wrong. Um, so, for the benefit of the audience, I'm just going to real quickly blaze through some of the main points of the book before we before we start digging into the details. So, the three foundational assumptions is an organization is an eco ecosystem shaped by the interactions of both individuals and teams. And teams are not just a, a collection of individuals. They're something that behaves differently. And the backstop of this book, which is what I really thought fascinating, is the idea of Conway's Law, you know, which is uh, systems that we design will typically um, resemble the communication lines and hierarchy inside of an organization. So Conway's Law, if you think about it, is a strong driver of software product shape and or organizations benefit from addressing the implications of this law. Um, as a shout out to the comic Agile guys, they actually did a comic where they referenced this without referencing this, where it's some guy sitting there in an office ruminating in his brain where he talks about how HR decides the structure of the organization and then the structure of the organization with Conway's law decides the software we build. And he has this light bulb moment where he said, HR designs our software. And that was one of those things where you kind of laugh, but you're kind of like, I'm laughing because if I take two steps back and think about it, that's actually probably not too far off considering Conway's law. So the book 10 ties back into how do we organize and interact with our teams, especially when you get to organizations at scale, at size, multiple teams, multiple complexity, all talking to each other. Um, they, they come up with an idea for different team topologies, which is streamlined platform enabling and complicated subsystem. They have all these interaction patterns uh, and, one of the things which I, the first point that I really want to dive in with the three of you is the idea of organizing around cognitive load. For me, that was one of the parts in the book where my brain just kind of exploded because I, I, I was thinking about, well, holy crap, this makes total sense. Um, Nicholas, what did you think of that point 
the point around the different types of cognitive load a team will experience and that you should divide your teams to make sure that their cognitive load is truly spent on the heuristic work that they have to do, not how do I maintain this platform? How do I do this process? What were your thoughts? I, I think that that was one of the most like insightful uh, parts of the book for me. Uh, I have never read about like cognitive load theory before. Uh, so like, uh, like very briefly, uh, kind of like the definition is, is that you have a certain amount of, of like working memory, uh, a certain amount of things you can keep in your working memory. And, and if you like exceed that limit, then you kind of get into this cognitive overload. So you need to manage that. That was like the key insight there. And, and uh, they, they, uh, they talked about that there are like three types of cognitive loads you have. So you have like this uh, uh, intrinsic cognitive load. So if you think about learning something like, let's say, riding a bike, if, if, if you have never done that before, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult for you. And, and, uh, but, but then like you, can, you can reduce that, that intrinsic uh, cognitive load by, like, for instance, hiring people that, that are, uh, you know, no, no, that those things ready, or you can like buy buy a bike or, or se select a technology that is is easy, and then you have like this extraneous cognitive load. So meaning that that you um, that's like the environment. So so like using this bike example, like how easy it is to to uh, to, to ride that bike in a certain environment, and and you want to like eliminate that. So you want to have like kind of a um, technologies, for instance, that 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 or, or make it as easy to 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 point, like de de deploy the technology so so that, that that's thing in the environment and then you have this uh the last part which is the uh what they call the germine cognitive law so that that's where it comes from the theory and that's like where you do the kind of like creative thinking and and, and learning and and you want to like have teams as much kind of focus on on, on that type of load so i think that that was like very insightful and how you can kind of reduce those other type of loads and that informed like then how do you form these Kind of type of teams and, and and how they are like structured so so i thought that was like very interesting theory like behind behind so, uh yeah that, well thanks nicholas because you you did a better job explaining it than i than i really could have and it looks like for, based upon the video uh you did that off the top of your head so god bless you god bless you um janelle i want to ask you you know you said early uh, as we started this episode that you came across this book as part of a hiring process where the organization you were joining is using this as kind of a as a bellwether right to do sizing um, what were your thoughts on that whole cognitive load piece when you got to that? And can, could you automatically picture how a company would maybe slice and dice their teams? What were your, where was your brain going when you hit that part? My first um, place it went was empathy. I say, oh, that's a nice way to share some of the messes we see, you know, unintentional messes. Um, you know, a lot of organizations think they're trying to do the right thing and trying to be strategic or whatever, but it ends up with this, um, this load where we can't get anything done. Um, so that's, that was my first thought on this. Um, what I'm trying to do with, not, I'm not going to tell you about, here's what I'm doing at Globant and um, <laughs> tell you something, but what I'm trying to do as a consultant and coach that's trying to have that big view and advisory view is trying to draw flow into that. Cause some of these constructs, like even when we were talking about HR just a moment ago, um, might feel out of reach, even in those, you know, pie in the sky conversations where we're trying to just say, let's suspend the disbelief for just a moment and talk about possibility here. So even within that, I think some of the stuff can feel out of reach. And so I love how flow is brought into this because I think that's something we can help people grab onto. Perfect. Mike, thoughts? 
on the whole cognitive load aspect? Uh, echo what uh, Janelle just mentioned about uh, how bringing flow into the conversation is helpful. For me, that was the thing that really uh, kind of lit up the, the aha moment about the, the thing of the cognitive load is, I, as I was reading this, I was thinking back over you know a somewhat lengthy career in software development and just relating to different contexts I've worked in and could see where when the cognitive load was high, the flow was low and people were not happy and it was, it was, a, it was a, almost a toxic environment. Um, so that it, it, it was kind of neat because there were ne there's now words to describe what I've experienced and kind of learned and evolved over, over the years. And um, it's interesting using that, that term and putting the decisions about how cognitive load is um, affecting things, you know, naming it and calling it out loud. Some people just kind of recoil and like, you know, what's this airy-fairy stuff you're talking about? And other people <laughs> kind of get it. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, there was one other point though that really um, hit home for me in the context of the uh, client that I'm currently working with. <clears throat> they're, they're building a new platform, new product that is pretty much API based. So um, speaking with the CTO uh, recently, um, I was able to bring to him the idea that a selling point of your new product is that the cog it's designed and built in such a way that the cognitive load on your, your client, your customers who are going to integrate this into their ecosystem, that cognitive load is going to be lower. So that gives you a competitive advantage, which translates into your stuff can be integrated faster, cheaper, more reliably. So there's a there's a business case for it um, as well. For me, I think the thing that jumped out was I could never remember how to do anything in Jira. I could never remember how to do anything in Jira. And I'll get all these emails that say, hey, in Jira, to do this, you got to do this. And it's like a 10-step process. And I usually just blank it out. And I had somebody say to me, you know, Jay, we get you always ask me to send this email like five times. And at first I'm like, man, am I really that lazy and dumb? But then I thought about it and it ties to that first type of cognitive load, the intrinsic cognitive load. How do you work in the space? And with a limited load inside of our brains, I really don't care. I, I said to him flat out, I realized I really don't care to remember because I know if I have a question, I'm going to email you and you're going to send me back the same email you've sent me 10 times. But I don't need to remember that because I can offload that to something else. And this ties to the cognitive load thing, we can do a whole episode on that. This ties to how dumb GPS has made us, how dumb GPS has made us. I actually went up to my, where I grew up the other weekend. Um, I spent 20 years living there and I drove around town and then went to visit a friend and my dad said, oh, how did you get from here to here? Did you take this road? Did you take this road? And I went, dad, I don't know. I don't know. Said, what do you, you don't know. You lived there for 20 years. You don't know. I'm like, but I, I kind of just followed the GPS. He's like, Jason. You don't know the streets you're on? I said, Dad, I can, I can close my eyes and I can picture them. Don't ask me to tell you what streets they are because I've offloaded that. It's like human calculator, right? None of us can do math in our heads anymore because we, you know, all those teachers that told us we'd never have a calculator, liars. Um, all right, so there's another topic in here that I really want to talk about, the idea of code ownership. And I know this is a hot button topic. In the book, it talks about how code ownership is owned by a team. You know, we talk about collective code ownership in Agile. We talk about good code ownership standards in XP. Um, and yet this is kind of a hot button because it basically says Mike owns his code, Janelle owns hers, Nicholas owns his. And there was an open question where we built this agenda where we wanted to discuss 
does this create silos and inhibit collaboration? Or is this just a good practice we should we should really think about? And Nicholas, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? It, it, where can you see some of the um, where can you see some of the benefits to doing this to organizing your team around a particular mm-hmm. code base? But where are some of the drawbacks? Yeah, I mean, this was I think one of the like surprising recommendations they had. I've always been like used to thinking that you should go like with shared ownership. It's better for flow and all that. And, and these these guys said that no, do the opposite. And and kind of like the reasoning they had. Uh, was that that they want to have like someone like owning like being like the steward of the quality of the the, the system, and and uh, uh, and actually it's it's not like that black and white like they they while they recommend a strong ownership of the code they they still said that that you know people other teams could could like see should be able to see that code and they should be able to you know uh, provide their pull requests. You know, make, uh, but 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 it's important. Someone like looks looks like through, uh, you know, through that pull request and see that does it make sense or is it some kind of like local optimization for for that team that doesn't like benefit the whole system. So that was that was the the thinking there, and I, I think that makes sense. Although I'm not sure like like you know how absolute this rule should be. True, true. Janelle, what do you think? Yeah, I'm with Nicholas on that. I. Um... I think there's opportunity there. I think it takes situational context. What I also think is just like um, with other uh, topics of ownership, you can't just tell someone, you can't just tell a group of people and say, okay, you need to own your own code now. And so I, I think, um, you know, if, if the, the theory or the practice works at an org, like if you think this will work at your organization, having the communication around that and the the support to make that happen um, is super important. So it's not just, we read the book and we know what this is. Um, You need to go read that book and own your own code. So I think it's more of the the how that. um, Right, right. It's not necessarily the theory. It's how you actually talk yourself through it. Yes. So Mike, I'm going to ask you same question, but I'm going to put it under a different lens, germane to a conversation you and I were having outside of work. Um, how is the idea of collective code ownership impacted by the tragedy of the commons? Do you think this helps solve for the tragedy of the commons or does it, is, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What do you think? Um, I, I feel like uh, along similar lines to what uh, Nicholas and Janelle have been saying that with the, um, with appropriate expectations and guardrails and or guidance not guardrails guidance um the the idea of you know i'd use the term stewardship as opposed to ownership because if you have everybody anybody just piling in you you have chaos and and quality degrades quickly which is kind of the point of that that's made in the book but then there's a counterpoint to that in that um, by you know, along the lines of the tragedy of the commons, if you don't have some diversity of thought and uh, practice coming into that code base, it can get kind of stale or insular, or or um, uh, it it can start to degrade in in its own right. <clears throat> so the the sweet spot is figuring out with the human beings that are interacting with that code and that organization and the the ecosystem they're in and the motivations they have and the time pressures they have and the skills they have, what's the right 
right blend. And uh, yeah, the, <clears throat> there's no simple answer, but the, there's an, a possible anti-pattern that I would, I want to be real, real alert to, and that is ownership being, <clears throat> uh, becoming exclusive and inhibiting flow, which is the point the, the book mm -hmm. makes. The flip side to that is, yeah, I think of it more as code stewardship. So um, I steward and, and look after this bit of code and I welcome and bring others to contribute to it. And, but if you, if it goes too far and gets into the, the tragedy of the commons kind of situation, then you're inhibiting flow by, mm. because you're spending so much time um, fixing uh, pull requests or, whatever mechanism you use or quality yes takes a hit and it and affects everybody so there's there's a, a real art as much as a science to it I, I like that choice of the word stewardship as opposed to ownership because stewardship is is it still implies ownership but not um so tightly coupled it implies hey i'm just like the i'm i'm uh i'm the basically um what's it called the guy who works at the zoo i'm the one who basically um controls everything and i pass it along to another I, i'm just a zookeeper a groundskeeper at this point right i'm not I don't own it i'm just helping to take take care and make sure that it thrives and that it continues existence um i really like that idea so i'm gonna bounce to you nicholas and for the benefit of our audience <clears throat> i'd like to talk about the inverse conway so can you for those who may not be familiar can you explain what the inverse conway is yeah so uh to start with explaining what 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 Conway's law is, then, so uh, basically, uh, what's, what's the first name? Ed Conway, or oh, well, whatever. But but this guy in the, in the sixties, he, he, he was like studying the first like software systems and, and found out that uh, those systems kind of mirror the communication uh, patterns you have between people designing them, um, and uh, the the idea in the inverse Conway law is that that you you uh, identify what is like the intended architecture you want to have uh, for your, your, your big system. And, and then like you, you, you design the organization to follow those lines so that they, they don't have to kind of like fight the architecture that you have. So that, that's uh, how I would put it. Per perfect. So Janelle, does that make, does, does this work in real life? What do you think? If you're, if you were just speculating, if we're just philosophers sitting around the Oracle at Delphi, right? We have big agile A's on our foreheads. Where can you see this running into problems? Uh, my forehead's kind of small for the A. I'm joking. <laughs> um, real problems. So I, I think, um, again, it's in, that's like a massive change for some of these very established organizations. And um, there has to be, you know, like, what's the hypothesis for changing for us at this company you know so i think there's a lot of rigor behind that that a lot of places are in a big hurry and mm. and i'm not saying this in a like negative way it's just the, the way it is and so how can you um convince perhaps using a you know co creating a hypothesis so if an organization said we think if we do this this is going to happen and these other benefits will happen um how can they do an experiment with that um you know you're talking about teams of humans 
And so I would say, I think if there's a way to do some kind of smaller scale, scaled experiment with this, um, that again, it doesn't have to do with agile or safe or um, Kanban. It's about, we have these business outcomes that we're not able to get. We have flow problems or whatever it is. And you know, just speaking that way to look at, is this something we wanna try? Um, and again, having a change leader, um, someone who can really articulate the reasons why and compel people to um, at least give this a try is, is not easy at all. <laughs> that, may, that may be the biggest <laughs> understatement on this episode. So Mike, um, we, Janelle just talked about right how realistic is this? So if you were having to roll this out, right, we, we, where do you think you would see your biggest um, impediments to getting someone to take up this idea? And then how would, you, how would you sell it? How would you coach it? Yeah, the biggest impediments I think are gonna be uh, two things that will be roughly equivalent as far as the uh, breadth of the impediment. One is the, uh, the resistance, the human uh, dynamic that Janelle just mentioned. And the other is the, uh, the, tech, the technical architecture, the, the, the code itself. <clears throat> how stable is it? How, um, how, risk, how much risk is there? What's the, how risk averse or risk pro, um, uh, 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 how, what kind of appetite for risk does the company right. have? Um, so I think those would be the, 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 the impediments. I would try to, um, like most things, kind of be agile about my agile. You know, I look for a, um, a, a proof. I, I agree with Janelle's perspective, uh, stating the hypothesis, the benefit. What are we going to get out of this? Why is this even worth considering? And I hone in on the the what's in it for me for the different people. <clears throat> Just you know, make it real clear. Yeah, this is worth a shot because this is what it's going to do for you. <clears throat> and um, I find a, a proof case that was um, important enough, big enough, and had enough meat to it to uh, to prove that this could possibly work, but not so big and so central that it it creates undue risk to to the change or to the to the business. And then, based off off what we learned from that, then I would look for um, systematic, you know, kind of gradual ways to um, to spread this idea throughout the organization and um, couple that with the inevitable change that is happening. So as <clears throat> things are being updated or rewritten or modified or organizations are changing, people come and going, projects are winding down, new things are spinning up, whatever. And then the other thing I'll do is I would integrate this as a operating principle for new things going forward. So doing all that kind of in uh, conjunction, <clears throat> then I've proven, I've got the hypothesis, I've proven that it's possible, and then uh, looked for incremental ways to spread it out. I would not try to do this all at once. I I'm, I'm still can't wrap my head around your whole idea about being agile or do agile. You can't do agile without a project plan. Come on, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's another thing that comes up early on when they start talking about the inverse Conway, they start talking about Dunbar numbers. We don't need to go into that now, but I am going to, in the show notes, link to an excellent episode 
uh, of the Jim Rutt show where he actually interviews Robin Dunbar and they go in on all the different numbers and how they how they work and they also tie to cognition and how much can the humans maintain how many connections can humans simultaneously maintain on average some of you may be able to have 350 direct connections in your in your largest circle but on average you know we average around 120 to 150 um i will link to that in the show notes because i think it's a brilliant conversation uh, one of the things that did come up which i forgot it came up until mike you mentioned it in the pack group uh mark burgess's promise theory which i thought was really wild to float that in and mike if you if you could let can we talk a little bit about how that came up and how um the authors talk about using promise theory when it comes to team interactions sure um so i, I kind of feel like i need ben here to you know really give, <laughs> give promise theory the, the the props uh so i'll do my best to explain it i'm not i i still it's still kind of a who high or very thing to me mm-hmm. in, in some ways but I also get get it. So uh, promise theory to me really is uh, saying we're going to interact based on trust. I you know I promise you know I make a promise I represent that I'll behave in a certain way and you um, promise represent that you'll uh, consume my behavior and behave back to me in a certain way. That that's kind of how it sinks into me. I don't know. I, I probably didn't get it completely. No, no, you- I, I think you got it. Um, what I remember, yeah. and I, I also put in the show notes a link to the interview we did with Mark Burgess. It comes around with when you trust someone, you state that I am going to deliver X. I'm going to make a promise mm-hmm. to Nicholas that my API is going to do X. And if yep. you're always talking in terms of promises and what you commit to deliver, it, it takes the mud out of the conversational water because yep. it's a clear statement of I'm going to do this for you. Yep. So, so how it comes into to play in the organization of, of teams in, in this book is that um, when it, it was in the context, that, at least for me, of the um, uh, uh, the, the um, team that's uh, kind of like looking after an API, uh, so to speak. <clears throat> so maybe either a, a platform team or a complicated subsystem team. And uh, the the way that the rest of the organization can interact with that that code or that capability you know, based off promise theory that I can trust the APIs and that they're reliable and that they're easy enough to use and that any change in behavior that affects me will be well socialized and it won't catch me by surprise. And that's, at the end of the day, that to me, that's netting down to uh, trust and communication, which, you know, kind of are important in most human endeavors. Perfect. Perfect. I, th- I think you, I think you summed it up well. Um, I want to hop over to you, Nicholas, because I want to talk about like the meat of the book, right? So the meat of the book is the four different types of team topologies. Um, so the first one is a stream aligned team. And Nicholas, how would you describe that to someone who hadn't read the book? So the stream aligned team is, is like the, you know, uh, the feature team or the product team that, that has some customer-facing functionality that they are providing in like very rapidly in close collaboration. Like what, what usually when you think about an agile team, you think about the stream-aligned team. Okay. And uh, along the back of that, Nicholas, how would you, there's another concept of a complicated subsystem team. How would right. you sum that one up? So, so sometimes you have, um, and these are like rarer cases, like very few teams would, most of the teams would be the streamlined teams. 
But then sometimes you have some, and you don't necessarily have them even, but, but you can have some, some, something that requires some specialized knowledge that you need to have some, some people like focusing on some like, you know, I don't know, like Google search algorithms or something like that. And, and uh, or, or maybe some, something like uh, more exotic, you know, I don't know, COBOL programming or something like that, that, you know, not, most people don't know and don't want to know. So, so, so that, that would be typically be like the complicated subsystem team. And, and, and then like the, but they are serving the streamline teams because they're, they're like their customers are the streamline teams. Perfect, perfect. So Mike, I'm going to ask you to define <clears throat> one that I know you and I outside of this show have had multiple conversations around their positives and negatives, the platform team. Can you explain the platform team? Sure. So the platform team is, is looking after what you know, commonly might be called a platform, which is a set of functions or functionality that are used then to create and enable things that are uh, exposed to a customer. So a platform team could be internal within a company. So um, uh, the book uses a really relatable example, your um, uh, infrastructure as a service. You know, that's a platform team. So uh, current client I'm working with, they're in the uh, on-prem to cloud uh, migration. They're, they're building a menu of services that I need this much computer, I need this much storage and you know, other aspects. So they're, they're like a platform team. They're building a capability that's then used internally. A platform could also be external uh, customer facing, but you're selling a platform. Um, and uh, so it, it's, it's less directly connected to something a customer sees and cares about, but it, it's the foundational component that then is used to create a, something a customer cares about. Perfect, perfect. And uh, last one, Mike, I'm gonna ask you to define what is an enabling team? This one got, got a, a little bit squishy for me. Um, it, uh, it, as far as the difference between that and a platform team, but an enabling team, as I understood it, um, is a team that creates capabilities that then others can use. And then where it got a little squishy is when they were talking about the different interaction patterns and the facilitating interaction pattern. Um, yeah, that's, that's how I interpreted it. So one of the first questions I want to talk about, um, or a question I'm going to start with you, Nicholas, because you actually posed this in the chat group. Um, you said with these types of these um, types of teams and even these interaction models, like how these teams work with each other, is this, are we just putting a name on what happens in real life? Or is this really truly a pattern that we can emphasize to, to, to increase the, the quality of our interactions amongst teams? What are your thoughts? Uh, so so you're, you're referring now to the three like uh, interaction models between the teams. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, well, I mean, I, I do think they, they, they make sense. So, 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 so the three ones, they, they uh, defined they were, were like X as a service. Uh, uh, so, so meaning that, that you, 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 like, you provide your platform, you, maybe your complicated subsystem as, as a service that the other teams consume. Uh, and uh, then we had the, the facilitating one where like, like you try to remove those impediments there. And, and then was the, the uh, collaboration was the last uh, uh, of those uh, modes there. I think like the benefit here is that they are like, you know, what, what the authors kind of are saying here is that as a team, you do one of these at, at a time. And, and that like 
like it's a you know if it works it's it's quite powerful because then you don't need to kind of a uh, again try to 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 go to too many directions at the same time so so and to me it 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 makes sense my my question and i guess i'll i'll, I'll yes and that nicholas the the idea of facilitation versus collaboration versus x as a service doesn't the whole this whole agile thing talk about collaboration being first and foremost so how does how does isn't everything a collaborative conversation at the end of the day yeah yeah okay uh and, and i think like every team needs needs some level of collaboration like like you know if you're a platform team you provide a service to other teams you, you need to have some discussions every now and then with them to understand you know what are their future needs and 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 all that but the primary mechanism is not that you are sitting together in a room and having like those day to day collaborations which is like what they meant by collaboration pattern in as as i understood it okay so okay. so so yeah so 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 i i it kind of boils down to how how do you exactly understand those those patterns right right um <clears throat> i do think the idea of rules of engagement for lack of a better term how do i how does a platform team talk to a complicated subcomponent team right those at least defining them and having that construct out there even if you follow mm-hmm. it or not i think is beneficial because it you know rising tide all ships and all that sort of stuff so mike i'm going to bounce to you <clears throat> because there was an interesting quote early on in the book that i know some of us bandied back and forth and the quote was not all communication and collaboration is good so the first thing i'm going to ask you is have you actually seen bad communication and collaboration and how valid is this statement in your experience yeah i've seen bad communication for sure <laughs> Like communication that just doesn't work. People are not getting shared understanding. But um, I've seen—I don't know if I would call it bad, but maybe low-value communication and low-value collaboration. So um, it, have it try expecting like uh, you know, it, let me pull a uh, use a real-world example to illustrate this point. Otherwise, I'll just stumble over it. Um, Worked with a, a group of, of of four different agile release trains, so this is in a safe context. And there was a mistaken belief that everybody from every art tra- in that group ha- had to participate in every system demo from every one. Mm. So you had you know, five hundred people. You know, collaborating. You know, seeing, watching. You know, seeing the system demo at the end of the the PI um, to you know, quote, give feedback. And ninety nine point eight percent of those people didn't really care, and they weren't gonna, you know, have any anything meaningful to say. So that was an attempt at collaboration and communication that was uh, wasteful and 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 really kind of um, destructive. Mm-hmm. Bit of an extreme example, real real world example, but. That's you know, taking the, the 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 idea and applying it um, absolutely. Kind of like going to the buffet and it's like, yo, you know, chocolate's good, so I'm going to eat you know 27 chocolate cakes. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Too much of a good thing is not a is not still a good thing. It doesn't right. scale in that regard. Yeah. So it, like like most things, uh, you know, context and and applying um, applying the the principle and the idea. In a way that you get the intended benefit, not just um, doing the action. And um, um, the, the other, the other thing along the, the yeah. yeah, 
the other thing along the same lines is that these uh, communication patterns, I think of them similar to uh, service level expectations. So <clears throat> this is how we expect to interact, but yes, things may vary. So it's not what I would be really sad to see happen is this, these uh, communication pattern identified and then people say, well, I can't talk to you because you know it's outside this pattern. I'm sorry, uh, Nicholas, you want to say something? I, I, was no, I, I was just adding that. I think you were precisely getting with your example to the point that the uh, authors made there in the book that uh, you can kind of like do like nice things, but they are maybe not so valuable, like like participating in every demo. So so that that's why I think it, it's kind of valuable something what's actually essential and, and, and they have like a, kind of like a, uh, a pattern that you can apply and, and uh, and, and, and reduce it to, to, to just very limited things. So I think that that was the, the key point there. Very true. Um, one, of the, one of the concepts in this book that we didn't touch on, uh, but I do want to loop back on because I do think it's important, the idea of fracture plans. So one of the, one of the concepts in this book is they talk about, um, we deal with multiple monoliths. So application monoliths, monolithic builds, monolithic releases, uh, monolithic architecture, uh, monolithic thinking, right? I thought that was really kind of fascinating. And then from there, the book goes into fracture planes, which is the idea of where do I draw my lines of demarcation? Where do I draw my bounded context? And they talk about things like business domain, uh, regulatory compliance, change cadence, uh, even things like risk or performance isolation. What did you think in this section, Nicholas? Because this one really resonated for me. I really kind of thought that was eye-opening. Not just looking at code and ownership, but yeah, yeah. You know, where does the thing, gonna, where is it going to break down in the larger context? What were your thoughts? I, I don't usually like work with, with those type of questions, like breaking down monoliths. Uh, so, so it was interesting for me, but uh, maybe I didn't get like those profile, profound insights from it personally. So it's, it's, uh, I'm happy to hand this over to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky guy. Lucky guy. What do you think, Mike? Yeah. Uh, the, that chapter on fracture planes uh, made a lot of sense to me because it it's a, kind of like a menu of choices for how to best think about um, evolving towards a more modular because the the architecture of the code is one of the biggest inhibitors to, to flow in, in many of these cases. Um, so I, I took it, I thought they were uh, very insightful ideas and you know, the, the nuances and specifics of, of any monolith and the environment it's, it's in are um, probably gonna drive that. I really um, found myself attracted to the idea of the change cadence being uh, a key one because the if you're you align on change cadence that can help improve flow because you're you're um, batching changes in in similar ways so if if you need yeah you're doing changes that on, on an infrequent cadence you're gonna have larger changes and you're gonna have higher cost of regression testing so you can get some efficiency from regression testing a whole bunch of stuff as long as you don't do too much because then you don't know what you broke <laughs> um, and <laughs> right. smaller uh, uh, or more frequent changes would tend to be smaller and that that seems like a natural clustering so that one really resonated for me the other one that that i uh, kind of stood out was 
um, <clears throat> change based on um, on the persona or user type or user, you know, the job to be done with the software. So like, you know, <clears throat> um, most of us have worked with an application that has an administrative portion. So, you know, that tends to fall out on itself uh, easily, but, um, uh, you know, high volume users versus low volume users is another way to think about it. Your high volume users are also going to be your higher risk users. So that, that, that all made it made a lot of sense. And I, I thought, you know, that that's a great menu to stimulate thought. Mm. Multimodal options, as opposed to saying it has to be done this way. It's really, here's something you might want to think about. Do we want to think about this? Or do I think about this? You'd almost do one of those weird sort of like personality test games where this, re which this resonates more than this to, yeah. true or to me, this resonates more than this. So yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a business like, opportunity there. Like the eye doctors. And <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're quickly approaching time. Um, so unfortunately for our listeners, no, I'm, we're not ignoring Janelle. Janelle, unfortunately had to step out. So I want to go around the horn for some final thoughts. Um, would you recommend this book? What are your final thoughts? What are the, some of the biggest things you get out of it? Um, what would you tell someone else if they were saying, I'm debating picking up this book? What do you think? I'm going to start with you, Nicholas. Sure. Well, I would say, say it like this, that if, if you work in an organization or, or like with a client, uh, you think there's room to improve the flow within the organization, uh, you know, because there are like too many dependencies and or there's too much context switching or there's like too much cognitive overload. In that case, I very strongly recommend this book. I think it's like uh, they have a very credible solution, very well researched, like uh, uh, and thorough uh, uh, kind of approach to how to think about those type of problems, and just through organizational design or, or redesign. <laughs> so, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Thank you. Yeah. And Mike, final thoughts? Yes, I think this it's a book that's definitely worth the read, even if you're not breaking up a monolith or designing an organization, there's ideas and perspectives and wisdom in embedded in, in little bits and pieces in this book that can be useful regardless. So I, for instance, a, a group I'm working with currently, it's one team, maybe gonna be two teams. There's no real major uh, design decisions about the, the structure, but I've recommended it to their leadership sit and ask them just, Keep keep this in mind so that you design your app, your people structure and your application for the future. So there, there's a lot of uh, wisdom to be had in there. And uh, yeah, there, there's one quote in there that that just really um, stuck out at me. And that was, uh, disbanding high performing teams is worse than vandalism. It's corporate psychopathy. <laughs> <laughs> that was Alan Kelly. Yes, yes. Shout yeah. out to Alan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, as I, you know, if if you can get that take away from this book, then you know you're 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 doing good. Fantastic. No, there's no better way to end it. So. Uh, once again, I want to thank uh, Janelle, Nicholas, and Mike for joining us. On behalf of Janelle, Nicholas, Mike, and myself, I want to thank all of you listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review, a rating, some feedback on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Podcasts, your platform of choice. It does help others find us. If you'd like to join the discussion, we have a very vibrant Discord community, which is where everybody comes out of. So if you're interested, please find us on Discord. There will be a link in the show notes. Please hop in, join the conversation, tell us what you think. Uh, lastly, 
The Agile Uprising is committed to always be free. However, if you like what you heard and do want to contribute, we do have a Patreon out there, which helps offset some of our hosting production security costs. We spend, we have been DDoS so many times. It's kind of joking. Um, See the show notes for details. If you really want to contribute, we do appreciate it. Uh, No need to, but it is kind of nice. You might get a surprise in the mail. It might be a whole bunch of stickers for me. Who knows? Uh, So once again, I want to thank Nicholas, Mike, and Janelle. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out.